So here we are at the end of our first full day of practice together. We've been practicing together for 24 hours, and uh, for me it's been a really uh, lovely 24 hours. I know from speaking to some of you that it's, it's not all been easy, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, but uh, you know, hopefully um, we're tasting at least moments of um, you know, feeling the blessing of being here which we're receiving even in those moments actually that are difficult you know we can get very uh, think that if we're having a nice time then it's being good for us and if we're not having a nice time it's no good and that's not always the case so. so i thought this evening to share in these dharma reflections begin to share some thoughts around this uh, topic of our retreat that we've been alluding to throughout uh, the title of the retreat, Being in This World. And I actually had uh, misremembered the title of the retreat and was thinking of it as being in the world. And the last month I've had the uh, blessing to be um, practicing and uh, co-hosting co a very tiny retreat with a, an old friend who... Uh, like me, was a, a Buddhist nun for some years of her life, and she she sort of started after I did and ended after I did. But she was in the in the monastery for about twelve years as a nun, and I was mentioning teaching this retreat this this weekend or this these four days, and she said, "Oh, what's it about?" And I said, "It's being in the world." And she said to me, "Ha ha! Do you know anything about that?" <laughs> <laughs> As one nun to another. <laughs> so, you know, immediately we have a, a sense of the world that comes up and what's that and do I know anything about it? And just points to the fact that there are so many different worlds we inhabit. So, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not married, I don't have children. Many of you have children and grandchildren and, you know, you've... Um, tasted aspects of the world that I haven't experienced and all of us have come from very different experiences of life and we inhabit these different worlds and right now we're inhabiting the world of being on retreat at Gaia House. It was really beautiful um, earlier this evening after supper seeing lots of you lying on the grass in the sunshine and it just all looks perfectly idyllic and I wonder how many of you think okay you know here I am at Gaia House this is all lovely but this isn't the real world you know sometime I'm going to have to leave here and navigate the real world but the title of the retreat actually is not being in the world it's being in this world and you can just notice you know, just how that might change the perception of what it's about, you know, just that little subtle shift of language. How does it feel to hold in the mind the idea of being in this world as opposed to being in the world? So in this practice that we're doing together, we're really um, trying to do two things, hold two things in balance, is really honouring the specificity of each of our worlds, the many different worlds that each of us inhabit, and caring for the particulars of those worlds. But also, you know, what brings us all together to contemplate things together is uh, the commonalities within those worlds. And that's really um, what the Buddha's teaching addresses some of the universals within this very particular experience that each of us inhabits. So we're also connected, in spite of all this diversity, by our common humanity. And so, although my friend was teasingly suggesting, you know, I don't know very much about the world. You know, I have spent a lot of my life contemplating some of these questions of common humanity. So, when we think of being in the world, 
that often evokes a sense of me being a separate entity moving around in a situation or a location that's out there so it's me versus the world when we use the expression this world maybe some of that sense of separation drops away at least that's the effect that it has on me another way of uh, thinking about being in the world could just be life but it's probably not a very catchy retreat title or it would feel like too um, ambitious a topic for for a retreat but perhaps we're sort of pointing to the same sort of thing so many many ways of perceiving the world and I thought I'd share two um, perceptions of the world that come from the uh, really uh, the earliest uh, Buddhist teachings from early Buddhism that uh, are ascribed to the Buddha so there's a famous sutta that some of you may have previously heard that I'm uh, fond of and this is called Seeking the End of the World so those of you who haven't heard uh, Buddhist suttas before you get a flavour of the kind of worldview that this was written in and it may be or spoken in and then later recorded and this may be very strange to you but just you know there are many possible perceptions of the world so on one occasion the blessed one was dwelling at Sarvati in Jetta's Grove Anatta Pindaka's monastery at an advanced hour of the night Rohitasa son of the devas so the devas are the buddhist angels or um, gods in the buddhist cosmology approached and the buddha used to the buddha taught human beings but also in his deep states of meditation he was said to also teach uh, these angelic beings who would come to him to uh, receive teaching so rohitasa son of the devas approached the blessed one and in resplendent beauty shed his brilliant light over the entire Jetta Grove. Having come to the Blessed One, he paid homage to him, stood at one side and said, Is it possible, O Lord, that by going one can know, see or reach the end of the world, where one is not born, does not age, does not die, does not pass away and is not reborn? I declare, O friend, that by going it's not possible to know, see or reach the end of the world where one is not born, does not age, does not die, does not pass away and is not reborn. It's wonderful, Lord, it's amazing, Lord, how well it was said by the Blessed One that by going it's not possible to know, see or reach the end of the world where one is not born, does not age, does not die, does not pass away and is not reborn. Once in a former life, I was a seer named Rohitasa, Boja's son. Endowed with supernormal power, I could walk through the sky. Such, Lord, was my speed that in the time needed for a strong, skilled, experienced and trained archer to shoot easily with a swift arrow across the shadow of a palm tree, in such a time I could take a step as long as the distance between the eastern and the western sea. Endowed with such speed and such a stride, I wanted to reach the end of the world by walking. And with my lifespan of a hundred years, except the time needed to eat and drink, to urinate and defecate, to sleep and rest, I walked for a hundred years. And without reaching the world's end, I died along the way. It's wonderful, Lord. It's amazing, Lord, how well it was said by the Blessed One that by going, it's not possible to know, see or reach the end of the world. Where one is not born, does not age, does not die, does not pass away and is not reborn. And then the Buddha says this. Indeed, friend, so do I declare. But I do not say that one can make an end to suffering without having reached the end of the world. And I further proclaim, friend, that it's in this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and thoughts, that there is the world the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, 
and the path leading to the cessation of the world. So you might notice that the sense of what the world is, the world that we're talking about, also uh, shifts and varies. So just um, allowing that by referring to the world in this way, the Buddha was referring to a certain predicament of existence. And if that feels a bit mysterious and hard to relate to, just uh, allowing yourself to hold that mystery for a while. And then there's another teaching also from the early Buddha suttas, where the Buddha is talking not about the world per se, he doesn't use that language, but this sutta is called the all. He claims to talk about all that, all that there is. He says, monks, without directly knowing and fully understanding the all, without developing dispassion toward it and abandoning it, one is incapable of destroying suffering. And what, monks, is the all? And then he goes on to say that the all is the eye and eye consciousness, the ear and ear consciousness, the nose and nose consciousness, taste and taste consciousness, the body and touch, and the mind and mind consciousness. So the, what are called the six senses. So in the Buddhist uh, psychological tradition, we have the five conventional senses that we know and the mind and mind objects. And he says, this is all that there ever is in experience. There's nothing that we experience that is outside the domain of these six senses. And you can test that in your own experience. So is there anything that you know, perceive or experience that is outside the uh, domain of all of these and of course the mind and mind consciousness encompasses the whole world of thought and imagination and memory, feelings moods all of this so there's an old philosophy exam question about whether there's such a thing as objective reality and I don't want to get into a sort of big philosophical thing about this, but just to, to notice that if we examine our experience, we can recognise that we're always involved, that uh, we're always a participant. So even, even in those times when we actually feel alone and isolated, we're actually participating in a flow of experience, in a constant exchange with uh, what seems to be outside of us. And we know from modern physics that just the act of observing actually influences the whole. So this is not to make claims or ultimate statements about reality, but just to help us reorient to actually the world that we're investigating in our practice starts with our own lived felt experience because this is the only place that we can really um, that we really experience anything, it's the only place where we experience suffering, it's the only place where we experience the end of suffering and it's the only place where we really um, have any influence or impact on this co-creation of, of the world so when we practice mindfulness the instructions are to practice mindfulness internally and externally so we don't ignore what's happening outside of us but we recognise this um, co-creation that's happening and that what really matters is our response in the present moment because that's what shapes our experience and also the personal and the collective future. And so it's really important that we begin our participation in life, or if we're going to participate in life in a really beneficial way, that that starts with uh, self-awareness. 
So there's this famous, um, so much used saying, I don't know where it first originated in Dharma circles, that don't just do something, sit there. And that's what we're doing here, and it's not easy to do. So here's a quotation from the Trappist monk um, and activist, uh, who was also um, one of the (coughs) first uh, Catholics to really explore Buddhist teaching, Thomas Merton, and this is um, from a piece called Courageous Rest. Some of us need to discover we will not begin to live more fully until we have the courage to do and see and taste and experience less than usual. There are times when in order to keep ourselves in existence at all, we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. The very act of resting is the hardest and most courageous (coughs) act a person can perform because of what is learned there. And there are many, many things in the world that kind of um, pull us away from this uh, act of resting with our own experience. So having just been on this month with this friend of mine, I actually have uh, had a break from the news and I'm someone who can get quite addicted to the news, to the radio, to checking the news app on my smartphone and so on, especially with the sorts of things that have been happening over the last few months. And there's there's a sense that Many of us, we feel if we're not paying attention to what's happening out there, then we're somehow being irresponsible. And Kirsten very rightly said earlier today that actually, you know, we, we need to be informed. We need to make ourselves aware of what's, uh, what's happening in the world around us. But there's this implicit message we get, even from the concept of news, so that that's somehow more important than what's going on here. So Tanissa Robiku, who is a very prolific writer and teacher on uh, Buddhism and insight meditation, he says that actually the, the trouble with news is it implicitly gives us the message that this, that stuff is really important. That's the stuff that's really, uh, that really matters. And it takes us away from actually attending to what's going on here, which is actually where we have the power to make a difference in the world. So it's been really interesting to me to notice how this break from uh, filling my mind um, with all this stuff that provokes a lot of anxiety, I've actually noticed that I've had much more bandwidth available to uh, really meet people and hear people and that my memory is clearer and actually my personal engagement seems to be um, more effective and uh, more useful for actually having moderated uh, what I put into my mind in terms of information about the world out there. And I'd really invite you to just notice through this retreat and after the retreat what the impact of even for a few days of doing that is for you. And that it's really worth um, you know, asking ourselves questions about how much of this stuff about the world is really useful to know and how much is just overfill. Because it's not always wisely or skillfully reported either. So directing our attention to what's going on here and now, because the moment of experience and the moment of action is always now. The experience of suffering is always now. The experience of peace freedom or relief is always now. We may have memories of past suffering, but that's happening now. 
you know, the memory maybe triggers discomfort or sadness or uh, anger or whatever. But and but this all of this is happening now, and this is this is where uh, the point that the Dharma speaks to. So there's a traditional um, series of epithets for the Dharma. Uh, which get recited uh, over and over again in the in the traditional chants and recollections that you do morning and evening in in Theravadan temples and monasteries. This is that the Dharma, the, the teachings, or this wisdom is uh, sanditiko, apparent here and now, akaliko, which is timeless. And that can mean kind of perennial, so relevant 2,600 years ago and relevant today. But it's also saying it's actually outside of the dimension of time. You know, time is just one dimension of perception. And there's something about this, this teaching that actually um, disentangles us from even that dimension of time. It's ehi pasiko, ehi Pasiko means come and look, come and see for yourself. So pasati is about to see. Ehi means come, come and see. Come and see it for yourself. Openaiko, it leads onwards, it's progressive. It, uh, it opens things up, if you like. And then it's to be experienced by each wise person for themselves. So by, to, by one's own inner wisdom, one can experience this. But one experiences this by learning to pay attention to what's present. So everything we've been doing today is encouraging you to, encouraging all of us, supporting all of us to really land with awareness in the present moment and to uh, attend to what's happening there to our direct embodied experience and how how do we do that so this same friend who was teasing me about my lack of worldly experience she was also sharing that when she was young she she studied linguistics in South Africa and she learned you know, lots of different um, South African languages, there are many different tribes in South Africa and she was talking about the Sutu language which I think is what they speak in the Sutu and how there's this expression I listen to myself and if somebody says I'm going to listen to myself it means that they're going to go and lie down in a quiet place like many of you have been doing today and actually what they're listening to is their body so listening to the experience of their body. Many of us, if we listen to ourselves, the first thing is we're listening to a lot of chat and story in the mind. This sense of listening to the body. We might say feel the body. So we have different words for attending, um, perceiving this. But I was reflecting on the sense of listening to myself and also... Uh, the sense of um, or the expression we use to be heard what happens how, what, does it, what does it feel like when you, you say or you have this sense I feel really heard for me that um, I, ha- I have a sense that I really have been received in a very unconditional non-judgmental way and there's something profoundly healing and nourishing about feeling heard so when you listen to yourself in your practice can you also listen in a way where you feel really heard can you give yourself that quality of attention of unconditional presence I like these words Kirsten used this morning about um, or last night about no need to assess or evaluate. You know? we, we're familiar, many of us, with this idea of mindfulness as being non-judgmental. But even this sense of needing to assess or evaluate. Can I just listen um, and hear myself unconditionally? 
maybe that hearing metaphor, listening metaphor, is not you know particularly the one that resonates for you. And it seems different languages and different cultures have different use different senses, if you like, as a stand-in for awareness. And we do this in English as well. You know? So you might say, I, I feel really seen. And what does that mean? And we use the, these words of watching, seeing, observing for our experience in this moment. So you observe yourself, you observe your experience. We're inviting you to feel what's happening. Well, how is that? What's that? Or to taste. So I really tasted, tasted a moment of peace tasted a moment of freedom and we're not literally tasting it on the tongue but you see how there's this whole mystery of awareness that we um, find it very difficult to to pin down and then we but we use these these metaphors through our senses to point to this experience of being aware or of knowing what's happening so we talk about noticing what's happening or knowing so Utejaniya, who's a very popular Burmese meditation teacher these days, he, he often says, just know. What's it like to just know what's happening? Being directly aware of what's happening. And then we say being mindful of what's happening. And mindfulness refers to a, a kind of a specific capacity of awareness to, to keep something in mind, to remember, remember the present moment and remember the context of the present moment. But also the sense of knowing what you're experiencing as you're experiencing it. So when we're present to ourselves in this way, what do we what do we notice? And uh, to name what are what are known as the three characteristics of experience that the Buddha pointed out to ways of uh, seeing or understanding this predicament of being in this world that we find ourselves in. The first of these is. Uh, called anicca, usually translated as impermanence. So as you've observed the flow of your experience today, you might have noticed that it hasn't always been the same, that it changes. We've been through, we've inhabited many different sorts of worlds today in our minds. You know, and the body has changed from ease and comfort to discomfort back again, from being hungry to being full and being awake to being sleepy and so on. And even within a, in a moment of sitting, you notice there's the constant play of changing sensations in the body. So things are always changing, things are always unstable. And the other meaning of this is also that they're always uncertain. So I was thinking about the exercise that we did last night where you were asking yourself the question, what brings me here? And probably different answers came. And if you asked yourself the same question this evening, maybe some more different answers would come. And Kirsten very skillfully pointed out that you know, this isn't, we're not looking for the definitive truth about what brings you here because the perspective on that will always shift. You know? All these things are um, arising in the moment, dependent on various conditions. And they're not untrue, but they're not the ultimate truth either. And this is, this is the nature of experience when we really look at it. But the mind sort of resists that, and it wants to box it up and package it and tie it with a bow and say, OK, it's like that, and it's certain, because we get this illusory sense of, safety from doing that. And so the problem with all this uncertainty is that uh, it, it, it creates a certain inherent unsatisfactoriness to the content of experience. 
this is the second characteristic of of being in the world that the the Buddha pointed out is this experience of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, or what's usually translated as suffering. And du is the prefix and sort of negative prefix, and ka it uh, talks about the the um, axle in the whole of a wheel and so dukkha has this implication of being a, a wheel that doesn't quite fit properly on the axle so there's a sense of grating or of friction about experience it's never quite quite right I thought I had the perfect setup by moving on to this step so I could see you all and now you're too far away <laughs> you know. I'm probably not getting quite the right distance from the microphone and so there's going to be some playback on the feedback or whatever it is and so on so always just something is even when an experience is really beautiful like being in the wall garden earlier the vegetable garden and just think this is so exquisitely beautiful there's something about the even the intensity of that beauty that's kind of kind of hard to bear or knowing that that this is this is temporary it's going to change so it's not to say that there is no joy and satisfaction in life, but that it, it's fleeting and it's prone to change. And if we're taking refuge in the external circumstances of the world, we're going to um, reap disappointment. And we've all been sufficiently touched by this in order to be here. You know, Nobody comes on a Buddhist retreat because of an excess of happiness in their lives. <laughs> I don't think. Even if you feel really quite happy and contented, there's some real perception of actually this, the hardness of life out there that actually calls you to want to understand more. I think when I first came across this practice, I was very young and idealistic, and I think I was very unconscious of how much unsatisfactoriness there was in my own subjective experience, and it was more looking at, well, what to do about the mess that the world is in, and then slowly realising that actually... You know, it comes back to this here, and actually, there's a lot of a lot of suffering that needs to be disentangled right here. And then the third, the third, and and last of these is um, the quality of anatta or impersonality, which is a really uh, hard hard thing to to grasp intellectually, and it has many many layers to it. And I don't want us to get into a you know, a, a big um, anxiety feeling one needs to understand every element of this teaching of not self or selflessness. But this pointing to the uncontrollability of things that is not things aren't me and aren't mine. This this body that we tend to identify with, it's so very much out of our control, isn't it? We notice that just in the space of one sitting. And this sense of me that's here, you notice how that changes and fluctuates throughout the day. So I was really interested listening recently on on the radio to, there was um, a series of programs about the senses, whether anyone heard of that, but it seems that these days, um, psychologists or people who study these things, reckon that we have somewhere between 20 and 31 senses. So this, this uh, traditional <coughs> teaching of there being six senses, these days people differentiate this into far more senses, although I think we can still lump them all, they would fall under the, the, the sense of the mind and um, mind consciousness or uh, feeling, body and feeling. But the sense of self is actually a composite sense. So we have a sense of agency and a sense of ownership and these different ways in which we sense self. And this is actually a composite experience. And even the traditional senses, you know, like the eye and seeing, we we know now that when we look at something and we see you out there in your red blanket that there's just that the mind is translating certain impressions that fall on the you know on the um, the pieces of the eye and so forth that this is a, this is a kind of 
a, a packaged, an experience that's packaged together by the I and by consciousness. So all the, all this stuff is much more uh, insubstantial and contingent and fleeting than we normally take it to be when we see the world out there and we say, yeah, the world is like this. You know? This is a perception of the world, but it's not necessarily the world. And so this is this is this is fine, but the problem is is that we we perceive in a distorted way. We take things to be more solid and substantial and lasting and capable of producing satisfaction than they actually are, and we grasp onto them. And this is the core problem that the the Buddha invited us to notice in our experience. This problem that we meet this experience with clinging, with grasping, with wanting, or with wanting to get rid of. And this sense of not really seeing clearly this predicament or clearly what is. So thinking that things are or should be otherwise and thinking and trying to make them otherwise. So one... one um, teacher I heard recently, I think it was from a, from a student of hers, was sharing that uh, a good definition of dukkha or suffering or unsatisfactoriness is like it's rope burn. You're trying to hold on to something that's slip sliding away all the time. So what we're, begin- what we're learning in this practice is to notice when we're doing this and to let go these moments of letting go and to taste what it feels like when we let go, when we let go of our aversion, when we let go of our wanting, to taste the peace that can be found right here, right now, when we make peace with this moment of experience. So just to share one more traditional depiction of being the world, from being in the world, or being in this world from the Buddhist tradition, and this isn't a sutta. This is an, an image that some of you may be familiar with. Is this from the Tibetan tradition? The picture of the wheel of becoming. And if you know that, but where I was just staying, there were um, several depictions of this on the wall, and this is where you have a kind of a monster who represents death, uh, holding in his claws and in his jaw. Uh, a wheel and around the outer edge of the wheel you have these uh, six realms of existence so the hell realm um, beings in a state of woe and torment that lasts for an immeasurably long time Mm -hmm. then you have the hungry ghosts who are the beings who are never satisfied and these are depicted as having uh, really huge bellies and tiny mouths, so they can never actually fill these bellies. And then you have the animal realm and the human realm, and then the asuras, who are these kind of uh, super beings who are full of uh, pride and power, if you like, the sort of superpower beings. I think of them maybe as the kind of Napoleons and the the uh, you know the mega mega businessmen and the mega athletes, the people who really um, really exemplify power in a sense, that kind of power. And then you have the devas or the celestial beings, the angelic beings who inhabit realms of bliss and so on. And you can believe that these realms really exist. We don't know, unless maybe you have the capacity to see them. Some people seem to, but... We can believe or not believe, but what we do know is we know these kinds of mind states in ourselves. We know that kind of really feeling in a really hellish space, and that sense we have when we're there that we it feels like it's going to last forever. We know that the realm of really deep dissatisfaction, sense of real uh, longing, hunger, something that just is, isn't isn't getting satisfied, isn't going to be satisfied. We know the, the feeling of having animal bodies and animal wants and animal needs and desires. 
we know maybe those kind of moments of kind of pride and grandiosity sometimes if we don't notice them in ourselves maybe we see them we project them onto other people and we know moments of um, real happiness of bliss of peace (coughs) feelings of uh, spontaneous kindness or gratitude and how that feels to receive or to experience that and that so that sense of the, the blissfulness of some of these mind states and this is probably something that we'll talk more about um, later in this retreat and then the human realm of course in, in a way really it's hard to talk about that because to me it encompasses all of them you know but it's this place that's constantly changing and uh, the roller coaster ride that uh, I was speaking about earlier with some people. So this is this is the wheel of um, becoming, if you like, in the in the sense of this world that we inhabit as human beings. And in the centre of this wheel is uh, you have the symbol of the cock, the snake, and the pig who are constantly chasing each other. And the cock stands for um, endless desire. I think it's after all the hens. And the snake stands for hatred or aversion, which has many, many flavours, so we're not just talking about gross hatred, but even to just mild, this mild sense of not wanting or boredom or all these different ways that aversion manifests. And then the pig, which is delusion. And these are constantly chasing one another, so there's this core dynamic that's going round and round and round. And so the end of the world is not um, not eradicating all our experience, but actually knowing how to step off the wheel, stepping off this wheel of constant unsatisfactoriness. And this is what happens in moments of letting go. And this is what we're exploring experientially in our practice here. So this, this image is not one probably that you want to put on your kid's playroom wall or whatever. And so, you know, you can think, well, that's not a very cheery image to have on the wall. But I really, I had an experience when I was on this retreat just recently. Um, I was actually in quite a difficult mind space. Something had come up that had really triggered something. And I was actually feeling quite uh, stressed and de- distressed. And I was doing walking meditation and just going to and fro. And at one end of my path, there was the window into the dining room. And opposite the window was this, this wheel of becoming with the cock snake and the pig and all these different realms around it and the monster. And I caught sight of that. And there was something actually really comforting. And the moment that my mind recognised, wow, it's not, you know, there's no mistake that I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling this is actually how it is to be a human being. This is, this is the predicament of being human. Uh, this is what the Buddha spoke to. He said, there is dukkha, there is suffering, there is difficulty and unsatisfactoriness in life. And there was something about the normalising of that experience that was actually really helpful, really peaceful, because so often when we, we find ourselves struggling, we find ourselves in difficulty, we, we have the sense there's something wrong with me, it's my personal mistake or failing that somehow I, sh- I shouldn't be experiencing this. But just this recognition of, oh, this is how it is, can, can be actually quite comforting to notice. Okay, so just one, one endless more things I could say, but maybe one other little thing around this wheel of becoming to, to mention. So I was reflecting on this about this word being, and being in the world and being in this world, and how in, many of you are familiar with mindfulness modalities. Maybe you've done MBSR or MBCT or mindful self-compassion or something. And how in those modalities we often talk about being and doing, don't we? Just stepping out of the endless doing and just being. And I think this is a really useful, uh, useful perception, useful way of looking at things. Okay. And then, you know, the question comes up, well, does this mean I should never do anything? And 
course, it doesn't mean that, but we're, what, we're, what we're using this practice to step out of is a sense of driven doing or compulsive doing or habitual doing. So reacting rather than responding. And so, um, so the sense of being as something, something positive is not trying, we're trying to get out of being because the way that I've just spoken about it using these traditional Buddhist images, you could think, well, we're supposed to stop all this being. But actually, the sense of being in this MBSR sense is actually really quite useful. And then I was reflecting how the Buddha actually himself doesn't talk about being. He talks about becoming. And this is this endless cycle of becoming that I was always... This is not quite satisfactory, leaning into the future, becoming something else. And so this is, this is what... Um, he's pointing to the ending of the possibility of ending so it's not that we stop being but we can we can stop becoming we can rest in the middle of all this so the meaning of of nibbana of nirvana actually means unbinding we unbind ourselves from this this cycle of unsatisfactoriness Ajahn Chah, who was my teacher's teacher, a Thai forest master, he said the mind is like a screw. It tightens itself and tightens itself into suffering. But when we actually start to see clearly how things are, the mind naturally starts to unwind itself. So just trusting this process of beginning to see clearly what's arising in this moment and the patterns that are happening, the patterns of entanglement, there's a natural letting go. You know, somebody asked, I can't remember what the question was earlier in the group, but about, well, how do we let go of that? It's when you recognise something hurts, we put it down. If we pick up a hot coal, we put it down again. The more clearly the mind sees, the more it knows uh, how to let go. So there's a, you know, there's the whole path of uh, wise action, and uh, uh, wise understanding and mental cultivation that we use to develop all this. I'm not going to go into all that now, but, we, um, but we've embarked on this together already you know, through our, the trainings that we've undertaken and the reflecting that we're doing and our cultivation of steady presence. And an image that came to my mind recently is that why that dukkha is kind of like or the experience of, of discomfort, pain, unsatisfactoriness of any kind. And I'm not just I'm not just talking physical pain in the body because uh, this is something that is part of having a body. But you can you can we can explore together. You know how is it possible to be with discomfort in the body but ease in the mind? But this. This mental suffering is like um, those strips you get on the edge of the road, you know, they're the white strips at the edge of the road, and if you drive over them, they make a noise to let you know that you're falling asleep on the fast lane. And I was just thinking, actually, you know, when something really hurts, it's like a kind of wake-up call. It's like you're driving, you're, you're driving off the path, and just there's this kind of buzzer that says, hang on, there's something that needs investigating here. There's something that hasn't been seen clearly. So then can we just get back on the middle of the road and just be with it until we can see it clearly? So even dukkha is not a mistake, it's a gift. It's our wake-up call, what invites us into deepening into this path and deepening into freedom. So there's nothing that happens to you on this retreat that's not part of it, that's not um, useful for the process. It won't all be pleasant, it won't all be unpleasant, but maybe we can meet whatever arises with this sense of curiosity and kindness. And in kindness, I include those senses of allowing and also playfulness about what we're doing. So everything, everything here is included. It's all part of this world. It's all, it's all the real world, and none of it's real. And that's the mystery that we that we live with.
So I hope that I've said some things that have helped you rather than confused things even further. It's just so inviting. I hope that you know, by offering these different perceptions in the world that what we do is we kind of loosen up our loosen up the tightness of our our views about what things are and uh, that there's a freedom in that loosening up. So please trust that you'll have absorbed anything that's helpful from, from what I've said and just let the rest go and let the words dissolve back into silence. You don't have to remember it all. If it's useful, it will have been absorbed. So let's just sit quietly for a moment or two. you for your attention. We have a period now for walking meditation and then we'll come back together for one last sitting to close the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.